Well, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Rock and Roll History, the podcast where we stage dive headfirst in all the hits, misses, and often overlooked songs and stories throughout the history of rock and roll. I'm your host, Sergey Rachmaninoff. But who cares? Come on, everybody, let's go rock and roll! Guess who's back? Yep, if you thought I was gone, well then you thought wrong. I'm back, baby, and it's good to be back. Yeah, I know, I know, I fell off a little bit, but do not fear. I'm now back in the podcast here, ready to serenade your eardrums with my lustrous voice, and here to enlighten you with some incredible rock and roll fun facts. Okay, joking aside, first and foremost, I'd like to apologize for my absence. COVID derailed me with some truly unforeseeable challenges, and it took me a while to get my bearings. But here I am, and the good news is I have a brand spanking new studio. And as the episodes progress, so should the quality of my shows. Since my workspace is now upgraded, my gear will surely follow. So as usual, thanks for your patience, folks. The best is yet to come. No, but seriously, I'd like to thank you, the subscribers who stuck around while I was gone. I had a dip in numbers, but for my faithful, loyal listeners, you know, the real ones who stuck around, thank you so very much. Seriously, I love you guys. Without your support, I wouldn't even be here. So thanks again. This one is dedicated to you. Our story today takes place in May of 1979. The Yanks written mod subculture classic, Quadrophenia, based off of an album of the same name by The Who, has just premiered in London. One week after the film's release, an at the time small unknown band called The Cure released their first amazing album, titled Three Imaginary Boys. During this same time, the Voyager 1 spacecraft had just recently revealed the first images of Jupiter's rings, while another cult classic film directed by the talented Mr. Ridley Scott called Alien was being set for release. And of course, good old Elvis Presley. Well, Elvis had been dead for nearly two years at this point, but a magazine called Elvis, the record, had just released Volume 1, Issue 1, and is considered somewhat of a collector's item today. You can find it now on eBay for $6.99 plus $4 shipping, uh, um, if you're interested. Today's episode focuses on a controversial person who somewhat recently passed away. And it's interesting, I had been planning to do this episode well before he passed away, so the timing of this is kind of fitting. But instead of beating around the bush here, I'll just cut straight to the chase. It's Phil Spector. Now, before you start getting your shorts in a wad, I would like to point out that we will be focusing on his contributions to music and not putting the man on a pedestal and praising him. For those unfamiliar with Phil Spector, the nitty-gritty is that he was a record producer charged with the second-degree murder of actress Lana Clarkson. And I'm going to be honest, he's really not the greatest person who have ever walked planet Earth. But his work should not be overlooked. And if separating the art from the artist is not your thing, I completely understand. But here on Rock and Roll History, we look at just that. The history of rock and roll. Which, quite honestly, isn't always that pretty. And you know, I'll be real here. Phil Spector wouldn't be anything without the artist that he was lucky enough to record. So there's that. And plus, we got the Ramones here to save the day. So just bear with me. Now before we get to May 1979, let's take a deep breath flip on the flux capacitor, and set the date for December 26, 1939, and find out who this terrible man, Phil Spector, really was. 
On Tuesday, December 26, 1939, Harvey Philip Spector was born in the Bronx to Benjamin and Bertha Spector, who were first-generation Jewish immigrants from the Ukraine. According to the family's naturalization papers, it seems that Bertha's maiden name was also Spector, which led to many light-hearted jokes about the two being cousins. Gross. Upon arriving, Benjamin picked up a union job as an iron worker, which led to the family living in a rough and musty industrial neighborhood. Being a growing boy in this environment, young Phil had developed a horrible case of asthma by the time he was five or six. Poor air quality aside, the area was as good as any for a kid to grow up. Nearby there was Soundview Park, which had a riverfront view and a series of its own gorgeous lagoons. There was also the Bronx Zoo. Admission was only a few cents to view their new attraction, African Plains Exhibit. And best of all, Glimmering Manhattan was just a few miles away. But of course, as kids naturally do, the local hoodlums would still get bored with these wonderful surroundings and start up gangs and fight amongst each other. Phil is quoted as saying that the only thing that kept him and his friends from destroying themselves was music, which he took an interest at at an early age. Phil would find himself surrounded by music everywhere he went. The neighborhoods had black R&B music playing from every apartment window, barbershop quartets were singing on every other corner, and the churches would ring with gospel and blues music. At home, it seemed like his family radio was always on with his mom, sister, and aunt singing along to the popular hits of the day. Songs by Bing Crosby, Gordon Jenkins, Johnny Mercer, just to name a few. The songs at this point in time would shape Phil on a very deep level. He would absorb all this music like a sponge at a time when rock and roll was only a crude slang word and not yet its own musical genre. One morning on April 20th, 1949, it was just another usual day in the Spectre household. Songs on the radio, nine-year-old Phil looking in the mirror, combing his hair, getting ready for school, and his father Ben walking through the house and out the door, heading to work. Little did Phil know, though, that his world would change and this would be a day that would drastically shape the rest of his life. Only 30 minutes after leaving the house, his father's car was spotted in an abandoned building by a passerby. Strangely, all alone in the back of the building, the man noticed the engine of the car was running. Upon further inspection, he sees that there's a hose coming out of the tailpipe leading into the cabin of the vehicle. Ben Spector had committed suicide. Carbon monoxide poisoning, asphyxia suicidal, was the coroner's official report. Phil's life would never be the same. Two days later, Ben was buried with a headstone that said, Ben Spector, father, husband, to know him was to love him. A few years after this tragic event, Bertha Spector packed up the family and their entire life in the Bronx and moved it out west for a much-needed change of scenery and to be closer with some of their other extended family members. They would relocate to a house on Spalding Avenue in West Hollywood, California. Bertha picked up a gig as a seamstress while Phil continued on with school. By September 1954, he began attending Fairfax High School. Fairfax had some other notable alumni, including our old friend Jerry Lieber, featured in episode 7 of our program, Shel Talmy, Herb Albert, Jan and Dean, just to name a few. It was during this time in high school that Phil decided to pick up a guitar and learn to play it. He had a broad interest in music and he quickly began to excel at his instrument. He began playing jazz guitar with some of the local groups and won two competitions, the first being a school talent show where he performed Rock Island Line, and the second being a local TV talent show featured on KTLA 5 called Rocket to Stardom, where amateur acts would compete inside of a car dealership. 
It's where the Wiltern stands today. I think it's on the corner of Wilshire and Western, if I'm not mistaken. So he won Rocket to Stardom competition by performing a cover of In the Still of the Night with one of his friends. In his free time, Phil found himself obsessing specifically over the bold music of Richard Wagner, which would be one of his earliest musical obsessions. The passion for music began to take hold of him, just as the new rock and roll craze began to sweep through the nation. He found himself not only fascinated with this new exciting scene, but also found himself interested in the production side of the records. He found joy in reading all the liner notes on his records, and he would oogle over the names on the credits, dreaming that one day he could be one of those names. Spurred by this and wanting to get in on some of the rock and roll action, he began poking his nose around many of the local recording studios in Hollywood. So studio after studio would turn Phil away, until eventually he had some luck getting into a studio owned by two men named Dave Gold and Stan Ross. This studio was called Gold Star Studios, which you may remember from our previous episode with Eddie Cochran. Once he found his inn, he would spend as much time there as he possibly could, trying to learn about all the studio gear and equipment. He studied the different rooms in the building, particularly focusing on the acoustics of the room. He couldn't get over the sound of the two echo chambers they had and how the whirlwind of sound would all come together so wonderfully in the control booth. Spectre's interest in these sounds would turn into his next obsession, and he would shadow Stan Ross around the studio, constantly hovering over his shoulder at the mixing desk. By age 17, Phil began attending Los Angeles City College to study court reporting. His mother, although supportive of his musical endeavors, wanted him to make sure he could find a real career when things didn't pan out. Phil was still determined to get his name on a record, though, and formed a cute little group with a cute little name called the Teddy Bears, naming the band after this popular Elvis song. Picking inspiration from the sounds of his early upbringing and the record collection of his youth, Spectre began writing his own songs and naturally, of course, wanted to get them recorded. He took his song ideas down to Gold Star and pleaded with his new friend and mentor, Stan Ross, for some free studio time. After some serious begging, the two reached an agreement. Phil could go into the studio and record his own demo if he paid the going rate of $30. $30 for two hours of studio time and $6 for the reel of tape. Unbelievable. Upon the agreement, Phil quickly got to work and started scraping up money from everywhere that he could. Phil then managed to get a small loan from his mom, but it couldn't cover all 36 of the dollars he desperately needed to record. So he kept going around scrounging. Finally, after some smooth talking, he was able to squeeze the remainder of the money out of some of his school friends, on the promise that they could be the singers on the recording session. So finally, he got his $36, he gathered up his friends, and they all headed into Gold Star to begin recording for their first time. The first song they put down was a creepily titled but absolutely rockin' one called Don't Worry My Little Pet, which was a tune inspired by the Everly Brothers. Phil adored the Everly Brothers and their harmonies, as most people do, but he thought the gimmick shouldn't just end there with only two voices. He wanted to push the limits and uh, wasn't content with just two-part harmonies. So he began to experiment with duplicating tracks and overdubbing. You probably didn't even bat an eye when I said that last sentence, but because today it's like commonplace, but at the time, the technique was just absolutely unheard of. This layering of sound resulted in vocals sounding richer and fuller, but the mix wasn't good at all because no one had ever even attempted such a thing before. 
This crazy layer idea did, however, get the attention of Stan Ross. He was impressed with young Phil's attempt to push the envelope of what was actually possible in the recording studio. He thought this crazy kid could be onto something and managed to go in and fix and clean it all up during the mastering process. Phil now had his very first demo. He was overjoyed, but he knew he still had work to do and immediately began to search and find somebody he could pitch the record to. Much to his surprise, he didn't have to search very far. As fate would have it, it just so magically happened that his next door neighbor uh, owned a record label. His name was Lou Bedell and the label was Era Records. Coincidentally, Era Records had just started up a subsidiary label called Door Records. The label was specifically made to try and cash in on the new teenage rock and roll music craze that was sweeping the nation. Talk about being at the right place at the right time. Phil then pitched the new demo to his neighbor, Mr. Bedell, and he liked what he heard. And he kindly agreed to give Phil a shot and sign the teddy bears to a four record deal. Phil was ecstatic. He had managed to get his foot in the door to record, but now it seemed the door was wide open and the possibilities were endless. He knew what he had to do and went straight back to work writing more songs. Phil would tirelessly work day and night, struggling to write his next song worthy of recording. Late during one of these nights, as if to have an epiphany in his sleep, he sprung up out of bed, went straight to his guitar, and the song just began to flow out of him. To know him is to love him, he sang, inspired by the haunting image of his father's headstone still hiding in the back of his mind. To know him is to love him would then be recorded with Phil behind the mixing desk and would subsequently be released by Door Records. The song managed to become a hit and shot up to number one. This was 17-year-old Phil Spector's first taste of success. He had done it, a dream realized. But it ended up being a one-hit wonder for the Teddy Bears and the rest of the songs they recorded for their contract didn't manage to chart and the band quickly dissolved after that. But Phil wasn't discouraged. He now had a taste of success, a taste that he now had an insatiable appetite for. Reflecting on his success, he realized that at just 17 years old, he managed to put together an act write some songs, and get a number one hit in the charts. He realized anything was possible, and his dream became more clear then. Everything clicked, and he finally saw what his true calling was, producing records. With his new self-worth, he went back to work and would continue to write and record more music, rubbing elbows with future legends like Jerry Lieber, Mike Stoller, and he even managed to befriend Lester Sill, who you probably also remember from episode 7 of our show. Phil and Sill eventually went on to start a label together called Phyllis Records, a combination of the two names, Phil and Les. This is the chapter of the story where Spectre levels up and begins to take over the pop charts, having a massive string of hits all bought up by the new, young, rock and roll crazed teenage audience that was now purchasing records. This earned him the nickname, the Tycoon of Teen, and he was becoming a well-known studio producer amongst the studio musicians and other songwriters like the fantastic group of players, some called the Wrecking Crew in Los Angeles, and the prodigious pop-producing conglomerate of hit makers in the historic Brill Building in New York. He would work with many acts like the Ronettes, the Crystals, Benny King, the Righteous Brothers, creating number one hits I know you're familiar with, like Baby I Love You, Be My Baby, He's a Rebel, Then He Kissed Me, Spanish Harlem, You've Lost That Loving Feeling, you get the picture. These songs would become known for Spectre's revolutionary multi-layering recording technique, a technique that would be known as the wall of sound. Okay, sorry. 
The wall of sound was intended to exploit the possibilities of the recording studio, much like his early experiments. Layering track upon track and utilizing echo chambers at Gold Star Studios, creating a dense layered reverberant sound, usually with an orchestral backing that would push the vocals up front in the mix. This layering transferred very well to AM radio and jukeboxes, which was probably responsible for taking many of these songs to the top of the teen charts. Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys is quoted as saying that he thinks that he learned the most from listening to records produced by Phil Spector. He said the recording of Be My Baby influenced him to try his own hand at producing records and said that the drum sound Phil was able to get, the harmonies, the piano, the guitar, it all blew his mind and he thought it was the greatest record he ever heard. Here's a clip of Cher describing what it was like working with Phil and his wall of sound. There was an energy that Philip would get. I remember Philip would be so excited about every session. There was just a vitality in the room that was would lift you off of your feet. And also, there'd be so many players, and the sound would be so huge. I mean, it was definitely that wall of sound was really, it was really there. This wall of sound technique wasn't all sparkles and rainbows, though. Those early stirrings of obsessions we were talking about were now overcoming him. And he believed that he had this control in the studio, and, that, and he thought that that was the key to his success. There are quite a few reports of Phil becoming very demanding, and it's said that he would make session musicians play songs over and over again, up to two to like 300 times just to get the perfect take. It was this obsession with capturing sound. He, he just wanted to get it the way he was hearing it in his head, as if he was Richard Wagner himself composing an opera. In the documentary titled The Wrecking Crew, some of the musicians remember this fondly though, and they kind of laugh about it, like lightheartedly saying they always enjoyed working with Phil because it was quite an experience. They were the whole sound that Philip had. Philip was also really, really superstitious, and he didn't, he wanted those guys, and he always wanted those guys, you know? He felt secure, only secure when he was playing with those guys. Same musicians, same engineers, same studio, same probably brand of tape. Yeah, probably. Um, it was just a thing that he figured if he, if he didn't do it that way, it wouldn't be a hit. He was probably right. He was probably right. And we're grateful for that. <laughs> you know, Philip was walking in a different universe than everybody else. And so in his mind, it was all him, you know? And the guys were just some sort of an extension of what he couldn't do. Phil would never record anything for the first three hours. I mean, he worked these guys so that they weren't playing individualistic. They were too tired. And so they, they just melded into this, this wall of sound. This wall of sound would become legendary, shaping not only the music and the record industry, but also American culture and the rock and roll aesthetic. Phil would continue on the tail end of his career, where he worked with the Rolling Stones and with the Beatles, working on Let It Be, and some of John Lennon and George's solo careers. And a quick side note, since we're talking about the Beatles right now, I just want to mention that he also did write and produce a song titled Ringo, I Love You, which was Cher's first recording. Coincidentally, I featured a cover version in the previous episode of the show, and I just thought that was a fun little pop-up video type fact, so I just wanted to throw that in. So as the times changed, so did the way records were produced. The wall of sound began to fall out of style, and right around the time that River Deep Mountain High by Tina Turner was released, it seemed completely dead. 
Phil was phased out of the charts, faded into obscurity, and he slowly became a recluse, and his behavior became gradually more bizarre and unpredictable. After that, he pretty much stopped working, and his name began popping up in tabloids more than it would be popping up on records. The songs released at the height of his career, and the Wall of Sound legacy would live on, though, and continued to inspire many bands and musicians of all types, surprisingly, even punk rockers from the likes of the Ramones and The Clash. The Ramones specifically were influenced by the rock and roll records of their youth, and many of those records just so happened to be put together by none other than Phil Spector. I think the Ramones are the epitome of a rock band taking Phil Spector's sound and melding it into a faster, harder rock. The influence of Phil's songs is apparent on so many of their tracks, like Judy is a Punk, I Wanna Be Your Boyfriend, I Love Her So, Rockaway Beach, Sheena is a Punk Rocker. Most people think of punk as this angry music for angry teenagers on drugs or something, but go back and listen to the melodies and the lyrical content of these songs. The influence of those American pop hits is so obvious, it's truly undeniable. Without Phil uh, and his records, there probably would be no Ramones. Or maybe there would be, but they would have just ended up sounding all goofy like the Stray Cats or something. Who knows? But without the Ramones spearheading the punk movement, rock and roll would be totally different today. They are responsible for passing a musical torch on to countless amounts of amazing bands. And just to reiterate how prolific they actually were, just the other day, even the Beach Boys covered a Ramon song. Here's a clip of the Beach Boys playing Rockaway Beach from just like a month ago. I mean, wow. That's like everything coming full circle. Greatness recognizing greatness that recognizes greatness. Absolutely wild. And I think it's absolute proof of Phil Spector's wall of sound contributions to rock and roll. Okay, so now here we are, finally arriving at the time our story today actually takes place. May 1979. But let me just it back just a little to preface a bit. The Ramones got their start in Queens, New York, 1974, and released their first album, which was self-titled, in 1976. By 1977, they had released their second album, Leave Home, and in February of that same year, Phil Spector happened to catch the band while they were on tour playing a concert in Los Angeles. Phil was astonished by what he heard and approached the band after the show. He asked if he could be the producer on their next album. Lead singer Joey Ramone was extremely excited by this, as he was a huge fan of Spectre. The band declined the offer, however, reasoning that it, would be, it wouldn't be the same without the regular producer Tommy working on the album. So they released their next record, which was called Rocket to Russia, and it was released in 1977, November. Rocket to Russia was received well by critics, but it didn't sell as well commercially as Sire Records, the Ramones label, had hoped. While brainstorming what they should do next, both the label and the Ramones agreed that maybe Phil Spector and his wall of sound might possibly be the missing ingredient and what was needed to get them back climbing up the charts. So on May 1st, 1979, the Ramones and Phil Spector entered THE Gold Star Studios and began working. 
And what transpires next is absolutely bonkers and pure rock and roll history. This album they came up with was titled End of the Century, and they had total faith. Well, at least Joey had faith that Phil Spector could save the day. Working with Phil was indeed an experience the Ramones were not used to. It was the exact opposite to what the Ramones' previous formula for their last four albums was, which was to go into the studio and record as quickly as possible for the lowest budget possible. The Ramones' business strategy was much like their music. One, two, three, four, hey ho, let's go, go, go. You know, they crank them out and get them done. Working with Phil was a completely foreign thing to them. They got to experience Phil's studio perfectionism at its finest. The album's budget ended up pushing close to $200,000. For reference, their first album cost $6,400. So yeah, a completely different experience. The album remains the most expensive endeavor the Ramones ever ended up partaking in. But it wasn't just money. It didn't just stop there. According to legend, Phil would use his Richard Wagner technique and have the boys play their parts over and over again to the point of exhaustion. They began to get angry with Phil and would argue back with him about how pointless his approach seemed to be. The legend continues that he would hold them at gunpoint and not let them leave the studio until they managed to get a take that he wanted. Johnny Ramone said Phil got so carried away that he had them sitting around listening to the opening chords of Rock and Roll High School for 12 hours straight. Didi Ramone had said that he pointed a gun at his chest and then motioned them over to the piano room and forced them to listen to him sing and play Baby I Love You until 4.30 in the morning. Now, how much of this is true is hard to really say. The Ramones are a hilarious bunch, and I'm sure a lot of this has been taken out of context. But either way, it's concerning that as far back as 1980, the Ramones were talking about a mentally deranged Phil Spector waving a gun around. So now after all this, the result was an album that didn't quite sound like what the Ramones and their fans were used to. To this day, many Ramones peers argue against this record, saying that it's terrible. I think it's an even 50-50 split, though, with fans either hating or loving this album. I'm in the latter group, and I think Phil's over-the-top production works well with the Ramones' sound and what they were doing at that specific point in time. And plus, as a bonus, Joey finally got to live out his dream of being a pop singer like Ronnie Spector, which just warms my heart a little bit. And I do think somehow Phil did manage to capture some of Joey's finest vocal performances of his career. So yeah, the session obviously left a very sour taste in some of the Ramones' mouths. They reflected back on their time with Phil with a little or a lot of disdain. Let's let the band speak for themselves. I think hearing it in their own words will help you better understand the situation. Here's a clip of Johnny from the 80s, Johnny Ramone, the band's militant guitar playing leader, describing the scene. Well, uh, working with Phil is very difficult because uh, I guess he's a perfectionist, so he likes to spend a lot of time redoing things and re-listening, and it's very time-consuming. It becomes very hard for a... I mean, rock and roll's got to be spontaneous and done a little faster. Now, he's just too difficult to work with, and it's too costly and time-consuming And uh, in the 1980s. You know, you can't spend... I mean, uh, the opening chord to a song of Rock and Roll High School, he spent 12 hours sitting there listening to that same chord over and over again. I mean, it's just not worth it. And nobody's, nobody else could hear the difference. The chord came out sounding okay, but 12 hours worth ain't really worth it, you know? You just go crazy. You, you would be as crazy as him if uh, we worked in a, with, with him. 
Times have changed, and um, most producers from the mid-60s haven't really grown with the changes that are, that are able to do what producers now can do. There's a new modern sound, and he doesn't have it. Damn. Well, Didi Ramon, the fun-loving, masterful songwriting bass player, also explains the situation similarly. I like um, beauty to be instant, you know, not to be labored over, and I don't like music to be a hustle. You know, I think we can adequately go into a studio and, and do it and not just be frustrated. And Phil seemed to be frustrated with us. I think he's frustrated himself, really. He wasn't um, the most friendly guy I've ever met. He tried to be friends, but then he would had a gun on him, and he made, wouldn't let me out of his house for a couple days. And you know, he wouldn't let. And then if he said, if you want to play his pinball machine, he'd let you play it for a minute, and then he'd say, okay, everybody to another room. And I never met anyone like him. Yeah. Like when, when before, I wanted to work with him a hundred percent, and uh, I, w I was gung ho for the project. But he came off differently. He seemed more positive and more able and when i got into the studio i found him to be like a helpless little boy or something like a very helpless person he didn't know what to do and that just stifles creativity when you just hang around in agony and frustration and, and stomp your foot and say oh what are we going to do and all you know that doesn't bring out anything in anybody he seemed like a man walking his last mile doing our record you know that grim Truth be told, much of this could just be part of rock and roll legend, which happens a lot with these he said, she said type things. But to ground the situation a bit, here's a clip of drummer Marky Ramone years later in 2008 describing the situation. And then working with Phil Spector, the real truth behind that. And, uh, and I don't want to bust anyone's bubble, but Phil never pointed a gun at us in the studio. Oh, no. That, that's bullshit. Sorry, but he didn't. But people need to sell books, so they'll put that in there. There were only four people allowed in the studio. That was the band. The tour manager, any the roadies weren't allowed in. Phil wa was secretive. The less people in the studio, the better. The only time the road manager was allowed in was when he came there to pick us up to take us back to the hotel. Um, and uh, I think in one of the documentaries, Johnny Ramone goes, Phil, what are you going to do, shoot me? Yeah. He wasn't pointing a gun at him. He knew he had guns on him. That's right. So big, big difference. Yeah. So that legendary story yeah, of him bullshit. holding you hostage is yeah, bullshit. Yeah, yeah, bullshit. No hostage. But uh, it never happened. There were no guns. And the only reason why he made uh, Johnny Ramone do that chord for the beginning of Rock and Roll High School was not to bust his balls but was to get a sustain. So yeah, that was from the great uh, interview that's on YouTube from Loudwire. I'll have it linked on the website. You should really check it out. And So since Marky butted heads with the other band members quite a bit, if you understand the Ramones dynamic, I think there might be a lot of truth to what he said there. So just make of it all what you will. End of the Century was released February 4th, 1980 and was met with mostly high praise from critics. Kurt Loder, reviewing the album for Rolling Stone, called it Phil Spector's finest and most mature effort in years. He said that the production was rich, vibrant, and surging with power. He noted that the Ramones are still spotlighted rather than the spotlight being um, the name of the producer. 
The album not only gave us classics like Rock and Roll Radio, Danny Says, Rock and Roll High School, I Can't Make It On Time, but the album also featured a great Ronettes cover of Baby I Love You. Despite all this, though, Johnny Ramone still remained bitter about the whole thing and somehow was quoted as saying End of the Century was just watered-down Ramones. It's not the real Ramones. And he said that uh, he didn't play on Baby I Love You at all. He said End of the Century was an attempt at getting all the songs to be pop hits rather than just having one or two pop songs and then the rest of the album being like the regular punk formula. He said, they ain't going to play the other 10 songs anyways, which I assume he means the radio. And I mean, I can certainly understand where he's coming from, but as a listener and complete nerd, I still stand by my opinion that the album definitely has some rock and roll gems on it. There's a great article from GroovyHistory.com called Ramones vs. Phil Spector, which I, I really, I'm all about it. The article has many great quotes and it has some great pictures. It'll give you a better understanding of the relationship between Spectre and the Ramones. I'll have it linked on the website, rockandrollhistory.com. So please, please, please check it out. It is so worth it. It's really good. So after recording End of the Century, Phil Spectre returned to his reclusive life living in his mansion in Los Angeles, where he continued to fade away into obscurity. In 1981, shortly after the death of John Lennon, he temporarily reemerged to produce a Yoko Ono album called Season of Glass. In 1989, Tina Turner inducted Spectre into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. In 1997, he was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and he received the Grammy's Trustee Award in 2000. He didn't do much of anything after that and remained inactive for most of the time. We can't talk about all that, of course, without mentioning how sadly in 2003, on February 3rd, Phil Spector shot and killed Lana Clarkson inside his house. Now, I'm not going to go into the tragic details of the story, but Phil was then convicted of murder, spent the rest of his life rotting away behind bars where he belonged. It's a sad and shameful end to the story of a man with such a rich legacy. My heart goes out to Lana Clarkson, her family, and all the people who were affected by any of Phil's terrible actions. As a consequence, this forces us to look at the brutality of the situation and question whether we ourselves can separate the artist from the art. Then there's other questions like, was he a genius? Was he troubled? Was it the genius that troubled him? None of that really matters, and none of that is for me to say, but for you to decide on your own. And either way, his legacy, forever tainted, still lives on. If Phil's stories interest you, please check out the book called Wall of Pain by Dave Thompson. It's an interesting look into Phil's life, and it's where I got some of the info for the beginning of this episode. And I guess what I'm taking away from this episode is that even though rock and roll has its very ugly parts, there's still some interesting things that go on in between those parts. And ugly or not, it can still change the world. Sometimes you have to swallow a bitter pill and take the good with the bad. History is history, and we can't change history, whether we like it or not. that concludes another episode of rock and roll history it's good to be back folks sorry that was kind of a long one but i felt like i owed it to you guys because of my absence so thank you so much for sticking around Uh, please check out our website www.rockandrollhistory.com and keep on rocking and rolling
like among the telethon, actually. You know Honey, what I mean? who, who's Where's calling? Where's Jerry Lewis? Is he This right is a total bore. Who's calling? Um, it's Ed. I'm sorry, what's your name? It's Ed. It's Ed. Hey, what, what are you making him do? Why don't you ask him a question? Someone faxed in and wanted to know what Joey thought of The Cure. Joey, do you have an answer? I hate The Cure. Really? Yeah. I'm gagging. Well, I'll let you guys go ahead and carry on with your um, spelling lesson. Bye. Okay.